You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students here at UC Berkeley about their research on campus and around the world. Today I'm joined by paleoanthropologist Whitney Reiner from the Department of Integrative Biology. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Tesla. Yeah, no, thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Uh, So first things first, can you tell us what a paleoanthropologist is? Sure. So a paleoanthropologist is someone who basically does work within the major field of anthropology, meaning they study humans and their close relatives, um, so primates. And paleo, of course, refers to the paleontological record. So basically, I'm studying uh, human and primate evolution through the fossil record. Okay, great. And uh, is that fossil record somewhere in particular? Well, what I have been studying most recently has been the fossil record at Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania. Okay, so Africa, just for oh yes, for correct. those of us, <laughs> Africa. Awesome. And I know that Africa is, gets a, is sort of like a hot spot for human evolution, and or at least gets a lot of the press. Mm. Especially Eastern Africa. And is there some reason that, that East Africa is such a hot spot for evolution and for paleontology? Sure. So I think there are two main reasons. One reason is because... Eastern Africa is where modern humans evolved sometime between 150 and 200,000 years ago, or where they originated, rather. It's also a place that has a really good environment for the preservation of fossils. So in some places that are more humid, for example, or don't have a lot of uh, volcanic activity, bones just disintegrate. But in places like East Africa, where you have the the Rift Valley, there's a lot of uplifting of tectonic plates, and there are volcanic ash flows every time there's an eruption, and these preserve the bones, and eventually they uh, mineralize into fossils. Okay, and that's d- definitely something we'll talk about with your current work. Just one more preliminary question. You said the word fossil humans. I guess maybe people aren't so clear. When I think of fossils, I don't really think of modern humans so much, but obviously that that's an incorrect assumption because there are modern humans that are fossilized. Correct. So it usually takes about 10,000 years for a bone to become a fossil. I think depending on the environment, it can take more or less. But you know, since modern humans and early modern humans have been around for much longer than 10,000 years, there are fossil early modern and modern humans. And then, of course, there are also other non-human hominids. So a hominid is any, any of our ancestors that is related to us more than we're related to chimpanzees. So there are other species besides humans that are hominids that we also find at Olduvai Gorge, for example, and all over East Africa. But those are all extinct now, correct? Everything but us, homo sapiens. Good old humans. And then so... Can you just give us a couple examples of hominids that people might be familiar with, just general public? Sure. So so I think one of the the most enigmatic 
hominids that people know about is Lucy. Oh, yes, I've heard of her. <laughs> yeah. And she was actually found in Laetoli, which is only about 30 miles away from Olduvai Gorge. So that's also in Tanzania. And that's also another fossil rich site. But Olduvai Gorge itself has been, you know, it's proven to be a, an extremely fossiliferous site. And there are a few species of hominids that have been you know, the holotype, so the first specimen of that species has been found at Olduvai. For example, Homo habilis and also what used to be called Paranthropus boisei, but is now called Australopithecus robustus or Australopithecus boisei. Lots of good names. Yeah, it was found there. And Homo erectus was also there. Okay. And so when you say Homo habilis or Homo erectus, those must be more closely related to Homo sapiens because of that Homo uh, in the genus. Exactly. Yeah. So all of the names are part of the Linnaean taxonomic classification, and it kind of works in an inverted pyramid style. So the last name, so sapiens, homo sapiens, is the most specific, and then above that is the genus, and that's homo. So anything with the same genus um, will have that same first name, and then it'll be differentiated beyond that. And so what, obviously, homo erectus is not homo sapiens, and you said modern human. So where's that line? What makes, like, a modern human versus an early modern human versus one of these other hominids? Well, those are that's really two different questions. What makes, you know, Homo sapiens different from the earlier hominids? Well, there's a lot of skeletal morphology, time differences. Of course, you can have um, one species over a really long time. It just happens to be a difference in time where some of them do not overlap, but some of them do. And basically, we look at the morphology and the biology, the paleobiology and the environment, and try and decide whether or not it constitutes a different species. But you have to keep in mind the amount of variation that's that's possible within a, a single species. And then when it comes to the question of how do we know what an early modern human is, like when it's different from a fully anatomically modern human, well, that is a, a source of contentious debate and something I plan on looking into further myself. But that that would be a whole other show. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, let's go back to the beginning. How did you get interested in paleoanthropology? Is it just from birth or was there a particular time in your life when you got more interested in this? Let's see. I think I've, I mean, I've always been really interested in nature and animals and science and, you know, kind of gross things. Um, but I also, I grew up in New York and my mom was always really interested in human evolution and used to take um, my brother and I to the American Museum of Natural History and take us to the Hall of Human Origins, I think it's called. And so I remember, you know, as a young child seeing, here she is again, Lucy, um, or, you know, of course, casts of Lucy there, and it interested me. And then when I started college at NYU, I started taking 
anthropology classes. My first class was human evolution. And, you know, I thought it was really interesting and also really cool because not only could I study bones and stuff, which is really interesting, but I could also study all those cute little furry things that are related to us called monkeys and apes. So it was kind of like a win-win. So I actually started out by looking into my interest in primatology, which is the study of living primates, or in this case, it is. And so I went to a field school in Costa Rica when I was an undergraduate, and I got to basically learn how to do field work on wild primate behavior. And I really liked that. Then I took a forensic anthropology class, and I realized I was really interested in the skeletal system and the different the different reasons for different skeletal morph- morphology, so different shapes and the ways different bones can look. And I pursued that. Okay, so a couple of questions. One of my pet peeves uh, for general science understanding is that a lot of people don't know the difference between a monkey and an ape. Can you you specified monkeys and apes? Can you just tell us really quickly what the difference is? Sure. So, I guess to say it in in the simplest way, it's just monkeys are less related to us than apes are. The only living apes besides us are gorillas, orangs, and chimpanzees. So, of course, bonobos are also a type of chimpanzee. Okay, so if you're not one of those, you're not an ape, and uh, if you're a chimpanzee, you're definitely not a monkey. So yeah, people should. They learn don't the have difference. tails, so that can be helpful to everyone out there. Apes don't have tails, so if you see a chimpanzee, and then someone calls it a monkey, they're wrong. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. And then also, so you mentioned forensics a little bit, and I know that you did some some very cool work in forensics in New York City. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, that was really awesome to have the opportunity to do that. When I was doing my master's at Hunter College in New York, I got to spend a month at the New York City office of the chief medical examiner in Manhattan as a visiting scientist in the forensic anthropology department. And so basically, I just went full time for a month and got to see everything that the forensic anthropologists do. And I also got to go to other things that the pathology medical student interns went to. So like the morning autopsy rounds and then grand rounds where they would talk about the different cases. And that was really interesting and really exciting work. And I learned a lot. But one of the awesomest things about that is that once I was I did that, they knew me well enough to hire me later that year to work on the third phase of the World Trade Center Potential Human Remains Recovery Project. And so this basically was just a project where you have a bunch of forensic anthropologists, some people are archaeologists, but people who know how to do that kind of work where you sift through lots of matrix and debris and dirt and look for potential human remains. And so at this point, because everything was very fragmented, basically we were just collecting everything that was a potential, so any remains basically, and anything that is human would be later tested for DNA. And how? What year was this? How long after 
September 11th was this? So this was quite a bit after. This was summer of 2010. This was the third phase. So they had had two other phases of this project. And by then they had moved it from the World Trade Center area to Staten Island, a place called Fresh Kills. And they had a mobile sifting unit, which is really cool. And another one of the things that was basically invented as a reaction to the the kinds of responses that are necessary for those kinds of mass disasters. Um, another thing was the ways of getting DNA out of bone. That was really developed as a response to 9-11. And I know people think of CSI and they think it's all like bright lights and fun and games, but that must have been a really heavy project to work on. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, we all knew the gravity of the situation. I mean, doing it from, on a day-to-day basis, you have, you know, and when you enjoy the kind of work you're doing, it's not like you're sad the whole time doing it, but you know how serious the situation is and you take your job really seriously. I mean, it was an active crime scene technically, so there were always policemen and firemen there while we were working every day, and they're constantly also testing the the water that flowed through the sediments because you wash use a hose to wash away the sediments to see what remains using like a sieve and so they would always be testing that to see if it was harmful to us and if it was we'd stop the project you know it's it was serious and there were lots of health and safety precautions taken as well and sometimes we would have family members of the victims come and see what we were doing. And so that was especially, especially, I mean, serious, I guess. I mean, it was just, you know, you, it reminds you like of the intense gravity of the situation. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.7 FM KLX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the talk show where we speak with graduate students about their work here at UC Berkeley. Today, I'm joined by paleoanthropologist or human evolutionary biologist, Whitney Reiner. Uh, You are a woman of many talents, Whitney. Oh, thanks. And uh, so... Let's move on a little bit more to some of the field work you've done. I know you've done a lot of field work, and it's some of it started off in Uganda, correct? Yeah. So um, when I was in New York for my master's degree, I worked in a primate nutritional ecology lab, or you know, I was a graduate student member of it with uh, Dr. Jessica Rothman, and her field site is in Uganda. Um, so. I went with her one summer to uh, work on a project there in which we took data on the red-tailed monkeys in Kibali National Forest, and we looked at what kind of insects they eat and how many they ate, and we collected some insects too so that they would later on test them for the nutritional components of the insects. And that was really cool. the species I studied for my master's degree was also in Uganda, but those were mountain gorillas in Bwindi Impenetrable National Forest. And I did not go there to study them. I went to see them when I was there, but um, I actually did a project on samples that had already been collected my, by my advisor, and I tested the fatty acids in their diet. Well, it did have the word impenetrable for a reason. It did, yeah. (laughs) 
And you've also done field work in paleontology. So how what's can you tell us a little bit about the difference between working with living animals and working uh, in paleontology? Sure. I mean, they're both really fun. I would say that I mean, I I think there are more commonalities than differences cuz you're still you have to find the monkeys or the apes. You have to find the fossils. <laughs> but I guess you know, it's just different types of work, and it's it's not all that different besides the end product and, like, the day-to-day of what you do, but the overall gist of the field work and not, you know, disturbing the environment beyond what you're there to do is the same. And, like, working with the local people and engaging them and hiring them um, is important, too. And you definitely wouldn't call your field work in East Africa part of anything impenetrable forest, right? It's a totally different environment, as we mentioned right. earlier. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. I forgot that. So um, Kibale National Park in Uganda is a really, it's a dense forest, and it actually has one of, I think it has the highest primate biodiversity of all the parks in Africa, if I'm not mistaken. And then Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania is actually a desert it's in it's in the desert it's in the eastern part of the Serengeti and it's I mean Olduvai Gorge is basically a steep-sided ravine in the Great Rift Valley and it's as I said in eastern Africa it's in the Arusha region of Tanzania and as I mentioned before it's about 30 miles from the Laetoli site which is where Lucy was found. Okay and I know you're working on a large project right now um, mm. with the Olduvai Gorge. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why why you're doing it, why it's important, and why Olduvai is important? Sure. So um, I got this great opportunity to work on this vertebrate paleontology project at Olduvai Gorge with my advisor, Dr. Leslie Alesco, who's the PI on this this project that was funded by the National Science Foundation. And there are a few main parts to this project. So I'll go over that in a second, but I'll just talk about Olduvai Gorge and the history of it first. So basically, Olduvai Gorge was discovered to science in 1911. And since then, people have been looking for fossils and stone tools at this site. And it's been the focus of a few really long-term research projects, and the most famous of these, which some of the, the listeners may have heard of before, was the Leakey Project, and that operated at Olduvai from 1931 to 1983. So the project that we're working on has a few parts to it. One is a paleontolo- paleontology field project, and that's called OVPP, the Olduvai Vertebrate Paleontology Project. And then we also have a database project called CODI, the Comprehensive Olduvai Database Initiative. And then the other part of this grant, of this project, is that we have some teacher workshops that have been put on to help with education in Tanzania and abroad. So OVPP, the Olduvai Vertebrate Paleontology Project, is important and different from the other projects that have gone on 
at Olduvai because most of the projects there have been an excavation-based projects where you're looking at either a specific locality in the gorge at a few or a single slice of geological time, or you're looking at multiple localities at a single slice of geological time and you just collect everything that you dig up. And basically people have studied the stone tools and the taphonomic the taphonomy of the bones that they find. So any marks or anything that happens to the bone after, you know, after the animal died. So it could be cut marks or it could be bite marks from, you know, a carnivore, etc. So what we're doing is different because it's a survey-based project where we decide where we want to go. And this allows us to basically just get on the ground and look for fossils. Not to say that this isn't a very systematic way of looking for fossils because it is. We're using satellite imagery and we're you know, planning out where we want to look. But over the two field seasons that we were there, I was part of two and there was a prior field season before that. Um, we covered just about all of the gorge. So we're not restricted to a single locality or slice of time because there are different geologic time periods that are represented by different stratigraphic horizons that are exposed at different parts of the gorge because of different faulting faults and er erosion. And so this is important because we get a better idea of the vertebrate communities besides hominids that were living along next to these hominids. And you need an idea of the, like, to have an idea of the ecology of these different animals gives us a better idea of the environment that not only they, but also hominids were living in. And it's really important to remember to link ecology with biology. Okay, just a couple things back in there. So you don't actually have to dig into the ground to find fossils? Is that unique at Olduvai, or...? It's not unique at Olduvai, actually. Sometimes they're in the ground, sometimes they're protruding, and sometimes they're just on top of the ground. It depends, like, how fossiliferous, how, how, how many fossils you might find at a site, but most places that have a lot of fossils, there are fossils lying on the ground. And you said that's from, like, faulting and the movement of the earth? Yeah, and even just erosion and rains. There's a river that flows through the gorge, and there's, you know, a season every year that it flows and that exposes new things every year. You know, I mean, you're not just going to, you know, there's no metal detector. There's no fossil detector where you can go around and know where to dig. So either you're going to excavate and see what you find or you're going to look for things on the surface. And if you find good things on the surface, then you can dig further. And that's basically what we do. Okay. And then also you mentioned trying to understand an, um, hominid ecology and environment. Can you tell us what the difference is between ecology and environment? So environment to me is just the overall, you know, place in a certain time where something lived, where an organism lived, and ecology is more specific. So if I say it interchangeably, I mean ecology. Okay. So like how the hominid is interacting with its environment almost. Uh, yeah, or what it's feeding on, what it has, you know, are there predators around, what kind of resources will it have to compete for, what kind of resources are there. So if we see that 
there are a lot of animals that lived off of lots of, you know, grasses or shrubbery or vegetation, we might think that the hominids either, you know, had to deal with that kind of landscape or they ate things that could be supported in that kind of environment. Just really quickly, you're tuned in to 90.7 FM KLX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and today I'm speaking with Whitney Reiner on The Graduates. She's been telling us about some of her work in paleoanthropology in Africa and elsewhere. So how does this vertebrate paleontology project play into the database part of the the overall project? Ah, That's a really good question. So um, when we collect fossils, we put, input them into this database, CODI, which is the Comprehensive Old Divide Database Initiative. But it's not just for those fossils. Basically, CODI represents the first time there's been a central like clearinghouse for all the fossils found in Old Divide Gorge. People have been finding and collecting fossils from there since 1911, so you can imagine there are a lot. So the other thing is that in the past, it was okay to take fossils from the country that you found them and put them in different repositories throughout the world. So the fossils from Olduvai Gorge are in many different repositories throughout the world. There are some in London, there are some in Munich, some in Berlin, Uh, a lot of them are in Tanzania in Dar es Salaam. Some of them are right here on campus at the UCMP, the University of California Museum of Paleontology. So there's no there's no central database where people can see what fossils have been found there and where they are and what the state of preservation is, what kind of animals. Basically, it used to be something that you'd just have to find out by word of mouth or by connections. And this way, um, not only does this project help science – because we're adding all these fossils to a database so researchers can see where they can access the fossils to look at them. But it's also, you know, it's a public website, so the public can look and find out more about the fossils there. And it's also a really important project to me because it's important for the heritage of the world and Tanzania. So basically, our job, what we're trying to do for this project is get all the fossils found in Olduvai recorded into this database. So everything we find is put into the database and then everything at museums and elsewhere is also put into it. Okay, that sounds like a great resource, as you mentioned. And you also said that there's sort of an outreach component to this for teachers. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this project also, um, it It includes workshops for K-12 teachers in Arusha, Tanzania, and they're coordinated with the really successfully run K-12 workshops here at the University of California's Museum of Paleontology. And this basically opens up cross-cultural opportunities for teachers in California as well in Tanzania, and it provides... You know, other educational things is it provides international collaboration. I have a lot of undergraduate students that work on this project with me as well. And I've gotten to work with a lot of great people in Tanzania also. Uh, For example, there is an understanding science graphic that the UCMP had created that they use. It's on their website. And 
we were able to get that translated at one of the workshops into Kiswahili, so Swahili language, so that the science teachers there could could use it. Well, that that all sounds great. Uh, before we move on to the final portion of the show, is there anything else you want to say about the project? I mean, you did a great job summarizing it, but sure, I'd like to invite all the listeners to check out our website at www.oldvai.oldvai-paleo.org. There, you can look at different kinds of fossils from different places in Old Vi Gorge that are housed in different places around the world. And you can see the kinds of things that we find there and learn a bit more about the history of Old Vi Gorge, about the projects we've been working on. And you can also learn more about the teacher workshops. And yeah, I'm just really grateful to have this experience and that, you know, Dr. Lesko was able to start this project. So speaking of uh, learning and the public learning things, I know there are a few opportunities around here to learn more about human evolution. Pretty sure there's a cast of Lucy in our in our very building, isn't there? On the second floor. Is that nice display case? There is. There's a cast of Lucy and there's also a cast of other there are other casts of fossils as well as some real bones, I think. And there's also a really great video with subtitles about Artipithecus raminus from Ethiopia that was found in the Middle Awash. Okay, so more hominids. So a nice little exhibit on hominids in the Valley Life Sciences building that's right next to the T-Rex, so you can really get a, a great little mini museum experience there. What about elsewhere in the Bay? Do you have any resources you would recommend for the public if they want to learn more about human evolution? I think that the Cal Academy has some good things on human evolution there. And I guess I would just suggest opening up a book. (laughs) That's always a great suggestion. Don't look at Wikipedia. (laughs) That's good to know. Um, and what about for students if they want to get involved and if they want to follow your life path into paleoanthropology? So I think it's really great to take some classes and to make sure that you express your interest to the professor and ask them what you can do to get some experience or get involved. I know we're always looking for people to you know, students to volunteer helping us add the thousands of specimens to the Cody database. And that's pretty cool because you get to look at a bunch of different fossils and you get to learn things about fossils you probably wouldn't otherwise, especially if it's just, you know, your first experience looking at pictures of fossils and whatnot. And it also gets your foot in the door. No, that's all great. And then... I thought maybe we could end by waxing a little bit philosophical. I mean, maybe I just ask you why, I mean, why, why do we care about human evolution? Is it just because we want to know like where we came from? Do you have any reasons in particular? Well, I mean, that's obviously a big part of it. Uh, Wanting to know where we came from. I think that, you know, for me, it's really interesting, but it's also just, it's an important part of 
one of the important parts of the history of the world and the earth. And I think that helping us understand where we came from, biologically speaking, can, you know, it sounds like it's very distant from things that can be used to help us today. But a lot of important scientific discoveries that seem really basic have been integral to more specific scientific projects that help people with different diseases, for example. You know, learning about our history and, you know, our our population history, for example, can help us learn about uh, more about our biology and you know, a lot of times you really need the foundation and the history of things to get more into learning about the present. No, that that sounds great to me. Uh, so that's about going to wrap it up for us. Do you have any last words for the audience, Whitney? Thank you for listening, and uh, we hope you visit our website. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, so one more time, that was www.oldevice-paleo.org. Yes. Correct. Okay, that's it. Uh, So that's going to bring us to the end of this episode of The Graduates here on KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla Munson, and today I've been joined by paleoanthropologist Whitney Reiner in the Department of Integrative Biology here on campus. Again, thank you so much, Whitney, for sharing your experiences in the field and, you know, in the lab and all the great stuff you've been doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Anytime, anytime. Uh, So we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of The Graduates, Tuesday at 9 a.m. For now, stay tuned. You're listening to KALX Berkeley.